Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, uh, we do thank you. We thank you for um, just uh, specifically this week for the celebration of Katie's service here at the church. We pray that there are many, many more women like Katie who hear the gospel and respond by giving their life away um, for your glory. We thank you for your kind provision to our church in a loan that makes us um, stable financially for a time being while we continue to pay down a debt on this building you miraculously provided for us. And Lord, as we look at your provision in the life of Katie, as we look at your provision in the life of the finances of this church, there's no greater place to begin to examine this text that we see today. And so we ask that you work mightily in our hearts, fixing our eyes not on the things of the world, but on the things of the Lord. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Uh, If you've ever heard the phrase, to a man who only has a hammer, everything is a nail, you've been introduced to the thoughts of Abraham Maslow. Maslow was an American psychologist who wrote a groundbreaking paper in 1943 entitled A Theory of Human Motivation. And the goal of Maslow's paper, which has been Uh, expanded and redefined over the years was to create a model of individual, personal, human flourishing from the ground up. And he actually created a mountain. He created this pyramid-shaped mountain that began with four basic needs. And when those needs were met, one reached the pinnacle of what he called self-actualization. And that self-actualization was a sphere in which your needs being met You're no longer driven by fear or by a scarcity mindset, but you're actually driven by a clarity of identity and purpose and a growth mindset. You are, once those needs are met, able at the top of that mountain to finally thrive. And today in Luke 6, if you have a Bible, you can open to that. We are in one of Jesus' longest teachings in the book of Luke, and it is a teaching directed explicitly, we see in verse 20, to Jesus' disciples. We'll be in this teaching. This is kind of Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in this for four weeks, and we're going to see how Jesus himself intends to address motivation and growth in the life of those who are his, those who follow him. And the truth is, none of us need a PhD or a psychology class to know that life challenges our needs on a daily basis. But what Jesus is going to do today is address the fears and the experiences we might have as we follow him with motivation on its own. The gospel-shaped motivation that we're going to see today addresses our fears and our needs and supplies hope and comfort which propel us forward and keep us motivated as we learn more and more the clear reward of following Jesus. But what's interesting in our text today is it's not us who climb the mountain of need to see who we really are. Instead, it's Jesus who, driven by his own need, ascends the mountain but comes down to graciously share with us the comfort with which he himself was comforted. And this is our big picture today. It's this, our experience with God gives us clarity and motivation in the muddiness of life. Our relationship with God gives us clarity and motivation in the muddiness of life. And we're gonna see this in two experiences that are bound up in our text today. First, we're gonna see the experience of Jesus himself. 
And then secondly, when Jesus begins, comes off the mountain, begins to teach his disciples, we're going to see the experience of Jesus's disciples. And our text today, as Jonathan just read, begins in Luke 6, verse 12. But in order to understand the weight of what's going on, that is to understand the weight of the experience of Jesus, we actually need to rewind and begin with the text we looked at last week with what we closed with. So if you have your Bible open, go one paragraph ahead and let me read what is going on in Luke 6, 6 through 12. On another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he, that's Jesus, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come stand here. He rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, in other words, they did not have an answer for Jesus, so they took the silent option. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, that is the Pharisees and scribes, described in verse 7, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so beginning about three weeks ago in Luke, we've beginning to see two things growing simultaneously. Jesus' followers are growing, but so is conflict with the Pharisees. And here it reaches ahead so far in the book of Luke. In fact, the Greek here in verse 11 communicates that the Pharisees were blinded and made dumb with anger. Think of the cartoons you watched as a kid where like Captain Hook's eyes get fully red and steam comes out of his ears and he's no longer thinking reasonably. This is what the Pharisees and scribes are experiencing towards Jesus. They're no longer thinking rationally. They're consumed with a sort of visceral rage, a fury towards Jesus, and more than that, they're trying to act on it. They're discussing how they in tandem might funnel this fury with action. And this is where our doctrine of the incarnation, the incarnation just means Jesus in the flesh, actually should matter and helps us read scripture. It's really easy for us to lose the tension of the incarnation and to flatten it. The incarnation attests that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is fully divine and fully human. But it's easy for us as we are following Jesus in life to flatten him into one category or the other and think of him as either fully divine or either human. And we get a glimpse of both of these aspects in his text that we need to hold in tension because we see Jesus' divinity in verse 8 where Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. We can deduce thoughts by looking at facial features and bodily reactions and our wife when she says, no, I'm okay. Like we know what she actually means, but none of us can read thoughts. But Jesus can, why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is able to do that. That's the benefit of being the creator. And if we only view Jesus as fully God, we know that this Jesus who knew the thoughts in verse eight is also the Jesus who was around in verse 11 when these very Pharisees and scribes were filled with fury, which means Jesus knew better than anyone else the disruption, the visceral rage, and the interpersonal conflict that was brewing. And if Jesus is only God, we might think that he encountered that with just this stoicism. Well, he's God, he can take care of himself. He's not threatened. 
Jesus probably heard that and he said, all right, well, I'm just gonna keep moving forward because I'm God and I can deal with it. But remember, this one who was God, this divine son was so motivated by love that he left heaven, came down to earth and took on flesh so that he would be fully God and fully man. And so instead of just this disembodied God, he encountered this hostility to a degree as you would. How would the one who is fully God and fully man respond to this experience of hatred and fury? How would you, if you found out the most powerful people in your day were blinded by hate for you, looking to do something towards you? Luke gives us a glimpse into how Jesus responds when we hold verse 11 and verse 12 in conflict or intention. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. So when Jesus knew the powerful men of his day were dedicating and dictating all their wrath to do harm to himself, what did he do? He withdrew to a mountain and prayed to God. And this is where we see our first point today, the experience of Jesus. Jesus' experience in this text is actually foundational to our understanding of what he's going to share with our own experiences, beginning in verse 20. There are many, many times in Luke, uh, one thing I'm super excited about is Luke loves Jesus' prayer life. He's always talking about it. But there are two specific times in the book of Luke where the author wants us to know the intensity and the duration of Jesus's prayers. One is Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, the night when he was arrested. The other is here in Luke chapter six. In other words, whatever is going on in Jesus's heart, Luke wants us to know that the solution is intense prayer. He didn't just go out to pray. He went out to pray and prayed continually throughout the night to God. You see, the beauty of Jesus' incarnation is we see that it is, it is not innately sinful for us to be burdened with the realities of conflict and despair in a broken world. In fact, to not be touched by the pain of sin and evil and brokenness is to have your hearts seared in an unhelpful way. To not acknowledge the pain of evil is to actually belittle the cross and the wonderful restoration of redemption. Jesus came because things are not okay. Jesus came because this world is a dangerous place. In Luke 12, Jesus, looking forward to the cross, tells his disciples that he is under great distress, looking forward to the work ahead of him on the cross. What we see in the experience of our Savior is not an impassioned God who fails to feel. Hebrews tells us that our Savior is able to relate because he was tempted in every way like us. But then Hebrews goes on to say, but he is also without sin. 
which means Jesus is not impassioned and unfeeling when he encounters us, but neither is he left to his own devices to figure it out on his own. Instead, we see Jesus, our faithful brother, who encounters the reality of brokenness, feels the weight of despair, and yet remains sinless in the midst of it, which is why we must consider the experience of Jesus in our own fight against the realities of life outside, which are dangerous, and the realities of sin inside, which are dangerous. Where does Jesus go with his emotions? While the Pharisees withdraw to discuss amongst themselves what they might do to Jesus, blinded by fury, Jesus, with full clarity of this conflict, withdrew to discuss with the Father what the Father might have him do. When we encounter such emotions, we often turn quickly to the worry of work, but Jesus was driven to the duty of devotion. You see, instead, what would you do in this moment? Instead of Jesus beginning a political counter movement, instead of putting together his 13 responses to the false understanding of the Pharisees and the fallacy of the scribes, instead of preparing his disciples for a better spin on what seemed to be a message getting out of hand, Jesus went humbly in need to God the Father through God the Spirit. And here we see the astounding beauty of Trinitarian theology. That here, Jesus, who was himself fully God, sinless in every regard, was still in need of communion with the Trinity. Classic Trinitarianism is the the Christian belief that there are three persons in one God. It looks at the Old Testament where God is one. And we see that that one God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, God, the doctrine of the Trinity, of the Godhead, is not like a football. In order to have a football, you've got to have the leather, you've got to have the laces, you've got to have the air. If you just encounter any one of those, you don't have a football. And, and so the Trinity isn't this thing where there's three distinct parts and in order to have a God, you've got to take these three parts and put them together and only when they're fully together is there a Godhead. The Trinity aren't parts that need assembled. The Trinity are three persons who exist co-existently and co-eternally. They are distinct. The Father is not the Son, The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father. But they are also indivisible. That means that God the Father cannot be the Father apart from the Son. God the Spirit cannot be the Spirit apart from its procession from the Father and the Son. Which means even though each and every member of the Trinity is of the same substance, fully divine, none of them are meant to stand apart from each other. They are together, indivisible as the Godhead, even though they are discernible as clear persons. And here we see in the experience of Jesus in Luke 6, 11 through 12, that the experience in this world is so broken, so difficult, the effects of sin so profound that even Jesus, who was fully God in the flesh, was so motivated by the trial of life to seek clarity and comfort that comes by running to God the Father through the Spirit. 
There's nothing like an experience with the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the Bible, which can reorient our hearts and provide new motivation in the mess of this broken world. You see, Jesus went to God because he was limited. In eternity past, he never needed to. He was there, fully present. There was no spatial realm between him and the Father and the Son. He, in the flesh, in his incarnation, was bound to certain weaknesses that all of us are bound to. He faced distractions. He faced, when he prayed throughout the night, sleeplessness. Jesus persisted in pursuing this divine comfort on the mountain, not only because his flesh was weak, but also because his memory was strong. In the midst of the most conflict that the Son of God had ever experienced in eternity past up to this point of history, Jesus remembered the relational joy of full unity with God. In John 17, Jesus opens back, peels back the curtain so that we might see the awkwardly intimate relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is something that makes us almost uncomfortable to see. It's like that couple that is kissing a little too close to you when you are at the movies. It's so intimate, it's so beautiful, and yet Jesus is saying, this is what you were made for. This is the, the uh, peace-bringing, conflict-crushing, heart-stilling, sin-destroying relationship which Jesus himself knew he needed. He needed to withdraw back to that intimacy. In the midst of the muddiness of life, he runs to the source of clarity and receives motivation and peace, which is going to drive him forward, even though difficulty, opposition, and sorrow still lay ahead. If that is what Jesus did, in the midst of the difficult circumstances in life, how much more do we who are not fully God, who are not Jesus, need to realize the refuge we have in bringing our experiences and our need into the presence of God? Jesus himself wanted to draw near to that comfort and in God's kindness, he showed us what that looked like. Have you ever found yourself living, as we see in Luke 6, 11, in these days? That is in the days where it seems like everything is going wrong. Where it seems like what brought you confidence is finally shaken. What brought you comfort is finally challenged. And what peace was there seems to be vanishing. What might it then look like for you to pursue what Jesus pursued with the same diligence Jesus models? I confess to you as your pastor that I am one who when the anxieties of life, when the experiences of conflict, when the challenges of sin rear its head in my heart, I bounce like ping pong style back, although I'm terrible at ping pong. So I'm better at emotional ping pong than real ping pong because I'm constantly going back and forth between something that is worrisome work, trying to work to solve everything and bring peace in certain areas or dumb distraction 
I don't want to think about any of those things. And so I'm just going to busy myself. I'm going to be on my phone. I'm going to mow my lawn for the second time this week. I'm going to do whatever it takes to not think about this. But I can tell you, and perhaps you know this from your own life, that both dumb distraction and worried work take effort, don't they? It takes our time. It takes our money. It takes our relationships. We are always giving something to get peace. But here Jesus spends his efforts and his time to pursue peace that is not fleeting or fake, but that is true and intimate. Jesus worked at finding true peace in his devotion. When Jesus encountered a specific season of difficulty and trial, he responded with an intentional and persistent manner of prayer. Do you notice what it says about Jesus? Continually throughout the night. Do you realize we're talking about the eternal son of God in the flesh? Think about your own prayer life. If there were anyone who could be justified with a flare prayer and having all their problems solved, would it not be the one who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father? And how quickly do we offer in the haste of our lives and the challenge of what is burdensome, we say, dear Lord Jesus, help me. We wait for 5.6 seconds and we say, he's not listening or I've done it and I'm at peace even though nothing has changed. But here our Lord pursued it and would not leave the mountain until he found it. My guess is most of us have a shared experience with Jesus's difficulty. You've been in these days before. But do you have a shared experience with Jesus in your devotion? What does it look like for you when it seems everything is falling apart to pursue communion with God through the wonderful work of Jesus Christ? As I read this text this week, this was the most condemning thing I encountered. Because if Jesus did that, how much more ought I to be able to do that? And we should have a varied life of communing with God. In the same way we do with perhaps your spouses. There are times where rushing out the door, I give Sarah the little like peck on the cheek and then I'm gone. There are times where we have the privilege of going on a, a grocery date. If you're a parent with young kids, you know the privilege of shopping without kids. It lasts for 30 minutes, but it's wonderful. And then there are dinner dates where you have a whole evening. And then there are times where we get weekends away. A life of following Jesus, a life of communing with God is varied. There are times where he wants your flare prayers. There are times where he wants you to come in the pace of life. But when your need is so big, what does it look like for you to slow down and say, I need God more than I need anything else? I need to go up and I need to continue until I am reminded of God's faithfulness to me. For me, I struggle with this because like you, I'm often distracted in my prayers. And one thing that I've encountered that's really helpful in this sphere, and I say this as a help to you, not as a burden, has been fasting. And fasting is something that brings a good distraction to me. Because as soon as I begin to pray, I'm distracted and I think about something else and that's typically how my prayer life works. But when I'm fasting, another thing I really like to do in life is not fast. And so when I'm fasting and my stomach growls, I'm distracted in a good way. I'm reminded of that I have a need and that was my need and God is my provision and he will sustain me. 
He is the solution to everything I need more than any superficial thing I encounter in life. And so what might that look like for you? To seek the comfort that Jesus himself had here as you have the same access to God on account of the Son. To take your experiences before the God who cares for you. You see, in a beautiful prophetic way, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the Lord's servant who is seen fully in Jesus Christ. And the terms in which he speaks of him is actually that of communion, which produces strength. And here we see in Luke 6, Jesus almost prophetically fulfilling this passage. Read with me Isaiah 49, 5 through 6. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may may reach the ends of the earth. Here, the one to whom God has become his strength is the one who is going to do the work of redemption. You see, whatever encouragement Jesus got on the mountain, we don't know in specific what it was, but we know what it produced. It produced him moving forward in ministry. We see what Jesus does right after this in verses 13 through 16. And when day came, praying all through the night, day finally came, and what did he do? He called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You see, part of Jesus's messianic mission was not only to bring back the 12 tribes to faithfulness, but to bring salvation to the nations. We saw that specifically in Isaiah 49. And here we see Jesus continuing this messianic work by continuing the restoration and renovation process of God's people by appointing the 12 apostles. Now, this number might not be lost on you because maybe you've grown up in the church and that's familiar to you, but it certainly wasn't lost on the Jews who were hearing this. That these 12 apostles were mere images of the 12 tribes of Israel. The summary and stand-in for the whole people of God. In fact, both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are glimpses into how God has desired to reveal himself to his people through Jesus. Paul says this of where we sit today in the Christian church. He says this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is the household of God built on? built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so here we see that the foundation of the Christian faith is twofold. It is both what is happening here in the New Testament and it's built on what was happening in the prophets and the tribes in the Old Testament. First, this promise we see is a specific promise. It is a promise that was given to the nation of Israel. When we think about the benefits of being in the kingdom of God, ruled by God, being his people and being in his presence, things we saw in Revelation earlier today in our scripture reading, 
That is a promise given to a specific people. And in the gospel, Gentiles are grafted into that. But more than that, it's not only a promise for, it's not only a specific promise, the promise to Israel, but it's a promise for a specific people. That is, not those who belong by physical birthright, but those who belong and show their birthright by faith. These apostles were from the tribe of Israel, but these apostles were Israel that also responded in faith, who realized that in coming to Jesus, we don't come because of what our skin color shows or our station in life uh, allows. We come in faith. And in seeing these two things together, we see the full picture of what it means to be joined to the promise of God as the people of God. This is what the apostles were meant to symbolize. Now, what are apostles? Probably a good question, maybe one you weren't asking. We often call them the 12 disciples. Are all disciples apostles? Are disciples and apostles the same? To answer you really clearly, yes and no. Yes, and that we see in verse 13, if you look there, these specific men were called to be apostles from the broader pool of Jesus' disciples. So all the apostles are also disciples. That Greek word disciple just means learner, follower. But not all disciples are apostles. In scripture, we read that it's these men, plus Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, and later on Paul, were the only ones explicitly called to the ministry of apostleship. And that word apostle means sent one. To be an apostle is to be commissioned, it is to be tasked for a specific purpose. And if you want to understand what an apostle is, we all look at the one who is the first apostle, who is Jesus himself. Jesus was the first apostle. When Jesus appeared to the same group of men in John after he resurrected, look at what he says to them in John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, In the Greek, it's as the Father has apostolken me, so I am sending you. Just as Jesus was sent from the Father for a specific purpose to accomplish and apply redemption, Jesus was sending these specific men for the task of being ambassadors, guardians, and stewards of Jesus' teaching. This is why, if you have read church history before, The Nicene Creed says that we believe in one holy, universal, apostolic church. In other words, it's not just, if you have, I have a red letter Bible here, it's not just the red letters of Jesus that are binding to the church and everything else is just kind of like, like, I guess it's good, but it's not great. Jesus has commissioned his apostles through the writings and the teachings that we see in scripture to teach to apply and to protect all that Jesus would teach them over the course of their ministry. These men had a unique task to establish the Christian church once Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. It was their task, we see in other New Testament books, to appoint elders and pastors to care for the church, to teach us how we ought to respond in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. But when their ministry was done, the office of apostle ceased. I'm not an apostle None of the elders here are apostles. The apostles were these men. And once the church was established, God entrusted that to his Holy Spirit working through the life of the church. So that's what Jesus did here on the mountain. 
is he appointed these apostles. But then him and his apostles come back down the mountain. And we see this in Luke 6, 17 through 19. And he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him and healed them all. So here we see kind of this transition piece in Luke's account where Jesus and his disciples return down the mountain and begin to labor amongst a large crowd. There's probably a few things Jesus knows here because Luke tips his hand a little bit. Because in this group, there are two big crowds. They're Jesus' disciples. That's mentioned twice in there. And then there's, and those who came to hear him and to be healed by him. In other words, amidst this broader crowd were those who were genuinely interested in following Jesus, genuinely interested in wanting to be his disciple. And then there were those who genuinely just wanted something from him. No interest in following, no interest in learning from him. They just wanted to hear him and to be healed by him as if he were some circus trick. He also knew that these 12 men whom he just appointed as apostles, we see this because he's going to prepare them for it, each and every one of them would die on account of their faith and their commitment to the teachings of Jesus. In light of this, in the varied experiences Jesus was standing in the midst of, he wants to prepare his disciples for the realities of life, giving them the motivation and perspective they need. If Jesus came to you and he wanted to give you a primer on following him, if Jesus himself wanted to prepare your expectations for a life of discipleship, what would you expect him to say? Well, this is in fact what we find here in Luke 6, beginning in verse 20. We're gonna spend four weeks picking this apart to see what it looks like to be a, a follower of Jesus. And this is our second point today. This is where we see the experience of Jesus's disciples. Read with me verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers, and we are to assume from that he's speaking of the Pharisees' fathers, did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." And so here we see the astounding privilege in following Jesus that he wants, he is able, and he is willing to speak into your experiences. He wants to come alongside you in whatever your emotions are and to sit and speak to you and with you. And Jesus' point here is profoundly simple, isn't it? 
His point is this, blessed, the Greek being makarios, you could translate it as happy. Happy is the present state, not the future state, the present state of those who on account of following Jesus find themselves to be poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. For presently, you have the kingdom of God and great will be your reward in heaven. Woeful, that is to be bemoaned, that is more than an unfortunate bummer, is the present state of those who on account of not following Jesus are rich, are full, are laughing, and are well thought of. For just as history shows the foolishness of backing false prophets and scam artists, so you are being completely duped, and everything you worked so hard to gain will one day be stripped from you. I wonder how many of you have heard this uh, pop psychology term that's been gaining more usage of late, and it's the term called gaslighting. It's been used to describe actions that are manipulative or abusive, and its namesake actually comes from a 1944, so we've had a 1943 paper and a 1944 movie today, and so here this is your history lesson. Its namesake comes from this movie in 1944 where a husband tried to convince his wife that she was going insane so that he could continue to rob banks without her knowing. We've all had that moment in time. And what happens in the film is he would manipulate the gas lights in their house. He'd cause them to dim or to flicker. And when his wife would come and say, hey, did you notice that? He'd be like, notice what? She's like, the lights are getting him. He's like, you're crazy. The lights are fine. This is how they've always been. And by the end of this movie, the woman's perception on reality was so twisted that she was actually disbelieving what was true in order to believe what was false. I don't know what your experience is with Jesus' teachings or with the Christian faith, but it might be reasonable in our day and age to look at Jesus' bold claims here and think this is just some religious gaslighting. That the Bible is merely teaching you to deny some reality that is true and to believe something that is just some religious supernatural silver lining. And I would say this would be a really challenging critique of Christianity and of Jesus' teachings were it not for the person of Jesus himself. In fact, when you are in school, when you are on YouTube, and you encounter apologetic claims against the foundation of your faith, almost all of them are very challenging and true were it not for the person of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, being fully God and fully man, solves a lot of these dilemmas for us. Might I remind us of where Luke has placed this teaching in the midst of his narrative? Where do we encounter this upside down blessing? Just when it seemed all was lost, when powerful men blinded by hate plotted against a preacher with no power, when people were flocking to Jesus, not because of who he wanted to be, the Messiah he came to be, but because of what they wanted to take from him. When Jesus' power was leaving him and being spent on people who weren't worshiping him, In the midst of all of this, Jesus lifted his eyes to his disciples and he said, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of God. 
you see, it would be nothing more than an incredulous lie and false reality. These blessings and these woes would be the biggest sham in the world if Jesus himself in the midst of his own fears and afflictions did not that morning draw near to God the Father and find the hope of this true reality. This reality of seeming contradictions is seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. It was on the cross where Jesus experienced torment, isolation, rejection, physical pain, and substitutionary death for those who had no right. And yet what the author of Hebrews says, it was for his joy. Why? Because he knew that despite the isolation, despite the humiliation, despite the death, what would come for himself was resurrected life, eternal glory, and a seat at the right hand of God, ruling all nations to whom every tongue, tribe, and nation would confess. But more than that, he was motivated because through the upside down nature of that kingdom, he himself would be the savior, the just, and the justifier to all who come to him in faith. You see, in Genesis 3, in the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it not only affected our experience, it affected our minds. We don't reason rightly. Our flesh has a knowing problem. And here Jesus, in his mercy, is speaking into our wrong knowledge, helping us think more truthfully by sharing with what I'm sure he just experienced himself that morning on the mountain. You see, Jesus is the one who went up the mountain of need and came back down. Why? Because we needed his comfort. We needed his confidence. We needed to be reminded of the realities of redemption. You see, Jesus is not calling us to be blissfully happy. That's actually why translators translate this makarios as blessed because it speaks and the word does to this reality behind the blessing. We know, don't we, the dilemma of happiness. Happiness, according to man, is often disconnected from reality. That's why we distract ourselves, isn't it? That's why when you take your kids to the doctor, they get stickers and suckers. It's to blind them and be like, you're fine, you're great, your arm's bleeding in six spots, but isn't this delicious? It's why bribes are so effective. We can placate people from reality with the most superficial forms of happiness. And we do that all the time in our own life. And in fact, there's this theme of prophets in this text, and that's what the Old Testament false prophets did all the time. God rebuked them because he says, you have healed their wound lightly, proclaiming peace when there is no peace. Brothers and sisters, when you run to distraction, you find peace where there is none. God is not calling you to close your eyes and experience some superficial blessing not rooted in anything. Instead, through the realities of redemption, he is calling you to understand the divine blessing of unity and communion with God. It's not blissfully aware of what is true, but instead, through the eyes of faith, views life through the lens of the kingdom of God. It is rational and reasonable. It is not thoughtless. 
In fact, we already saw in Luke 4, 43 that Jesus says, I must go on for I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities as well. Up until this point in Luke, we've encountered very little of Jesus' preaching, but Luke has been showing us the kingdom, hasn't he? Have you guys picked up on this? That it was not to Herod in the location of worldly power that God opened his mouth. It was not to the wife of the high priest that God chose to bring his son into the world, but it was to a virgin betrothed to an ordinary carpenter. It was not to the royal messengers of Jerusalem that the birth of Jesus was declared, but it was to lowly despised shepherds outside of the city. It was not to Tiberius Caesar or Pontius Pilate or Herod the Tetrarch or Caiaphas the high priest that the word of God came, but to a prophet who had nothing in the wilderness. It was not Jesus' hometown crowd who received the first miracles and healing in the book of Luke, but instead it was a demon-possessed man oppressed by an evil spirit. It was not the scribes and Pharisees which Jesus called to himself, but struggling fishermen and deceitful tax collectors. It was not the legs that needed restoration, but a heart that needed forgiveness. It was not the righteous that needed the physician, but the sinners. To view life through the lens of the kingdom of God is to view something that frames everything we see in the kingdom of man in a different light. You see, Maslow's mountains of needs say that in order for you to be who you really want to be, you must move past these tiers of fears. That's a great band name, by the way. Uh, And the first two tiers are that of physiological and safety needs. In other words, food, shelter, provision, clothing. Get it for yourself. But here Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor and hungry. Maslow's third tier is that of love and belonging. Find yourself commitment, connection, intimacy. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now. Maslow says the fourth and final one is that of esteem, of respect, of acceptance, of having status and recognition. Jesus says when that inevitable day comes, when people hate you, when people exclude you, when people revile you, when people count you as evil on account of me, you are blessed. You see, I want to make something really clear here that Jesus makes explicit in Luke 6, 22, and that is that there is nothing innately redemptive about being poor, being hungry, being sad, or being hated. In fact, you want to talk about what's gaslighting, what's a perversion. It's a perversion to look at those things and say those things are good. Following Jesus isn't asking you to see poverty and to see tears and hunger as good. In fact, the cross proves those things are entirely out of place. We look forward into eternity where everything is good. Guess what's not there? These things, they go away. Why? Because they are not good. Because they are the painful, sorrowful effects of sin and rebellion in our world. They themselves are no sign of blessedness. But Jesus here, he is not saying, blessed are those who love poverty. Blessed are those who love hunger. Blessed are those who love tears. Blessed are those who love hatred. Instead, he's saying this, blessed are those who love me. 
who on account of me are willing to endure all these things for a moment, knowing what you have now and what you will have in the future. Blessed are those who suffer, not for your own sake, or to gain acceptance with the world, but for my sake. You see, Maslow was right. We cannot flourish without certain needs being met. We will always be fearful, we will always be anxious, and we will always be paranoid. But here Jesus shows us precisely where those needs are met. They're met in him. He is the one, the one who came from the mountain, who brings us to a place where we know our needs are met, even if it looks like something else now. Blessed are those who love the Son of Man and are therefore able to trust him in the midst of poverty, knowing that it is precisely those who have no worldly value who inherit the valuable riches of the kingdom of God through Christ Jesus. Here is safety and security. Blessed are those who love the Son of Man so much that in the midst of their hunger now, they know that one day hunger will be thrown into the pit of hell and we will feast in glory. Here is food and fill. Blessed are those who weep now for one day all of your tears will be wiped from your eyes and you will only see the kind providence of God who weaned you from the love of the world in order to win you to the laughter of love. Here is acceptance. Blessed are you when people mistreat you, mock you, revile you, turn you down from jobs, cause you to lose income, you lose political power, you're persecuted, abandoned, and maimed on account of the son of of man because in that day you rejoice, you leap for joy as you consider what? That you will not so be rejected by God himself, but great is your reward in heaven. Here is acceptance and peace. Life in the kingdom of God, true blessedness comes not from drawing from our strength from the positions of power, sources of comfort, or affirmations of man, but from the Lord who provides our every need for us and has handed us in heaven a reward beyond our wildest dream. Remarkably, there are only three commands in this text, and all of these commands come in that day. Isn't that interesting? In these days, Jesus went, in that day when people say these things. What do we do? when our experience challenges our hope. We rejoice, we leap for joy, and we behold. What do we behold? Our reward in heaven. In the midst of the muddiness of life, Jesus calls you to consider the realities of redemption. If you've never turned, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us what that looks like. It says, God lifts our eyes so we can behold Christ. And how do we do that? By turning to the Lord, by repenting and believing in him. And for those who have turned, what is it that you are beholding today? Your life might not be a hungry life, a poor life, or even a hated life. You should behold that experience and you should assess, is that because of God's kind grace to you? Or is that because you have accepted your consolation right now? When we encounter these threats 
to our own need, it's easy for us to bounce between these doorways of distraction and dilemma. For some of us, we are unshakable in sorrow because we realize our world is broken, pain is real, history is moving, and what can anyone do? The best attempts of this world, all the technological wonders of the 20th century produced only the bloodiest century in human history. We are not getting better. We are getting worse. This is what it means to be human. Now, if we're honest, no one likes to think that, right? (laughs) Which is why most of us bounce to the other door, the door of distraction, where we try not to be still enough We try not for our surroundings to be quiet enough for us to consider these realities. We're on our phone. We're listening to music. We're consumed with our job. We're helicopter parenting our kids. We're online. We're in the woods. We're anywhere. But the place where we would consider the mortality of life and the fragility of human hope but Jesus here holds up a better option than dilemma or distress. And it's the beautiful option of devotion, drawing near to the God who promises that this life is painful, but there is hope and there is joy for those who endure. You see, it's God and God alone who makes sense of our reality, a reality we see in James 1, verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. We sang that this morning. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Does he have? No. What's he doing? He's pursuing but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You see, when we come to Jesus, we get access into an intimacy of God in which all we want to do is remain. A God big enough for us to run to even when our needs are threatened. And here's the kicker. Here's what you need to be reminded of in your experience. In the midst of an experience of in these days, if you draw near to the Lord and you come away with comfort, when the comforts of the world aren't present in your life, that means that you're realizing the happiness of finding something the world cannot take away. When we find comfort in the Lord, when the comforts of the world are missing, we find happiness in the one thing the world cannot take away. This, brothers and sisters, is the blessed life of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is calling you to for the first time and calling you to walk in in those days. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have went up in order to come down. Lord, that you share with us the very same hope you have and that your life expresses the very truth that you give to us. 
Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will be comforted. Blessed are you when people revile you, insult you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you on account of the Son of Man, Lord, in this room. May we rejoice and be glad. May we leap for joy. And behold, great is our reward in heaven. For so did they do to the faithful prophets who walked before us. Amen.